And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the first post-election, The Steamy. With us this week, we have Gina, as always, and also our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, is joining us for this post-election special, which is uh, all on time as per usual every week. So, uh, how are you guys doing? How was the election for you, Gina? Exhausting. Exhausting. (laughs) It just went on forever. (laughs) Not a fan of the of the counting through the day over two days thing. Quite like to have it all done and dusted <clears throat> in one night immediately after the police stations are closed, even if that means that uh, you're coming down from a caffeine high for the week following. But it's just, uh, yes, it's been a very long, very tiring weekend. And ultimately, I think, I hate to sound a bit football commentatorish, but it was a real game of two halves, I think, from the, <laughs> the Friday to the Saturday in terms of the results and, and where they were heading. And I felt the Friday was really quite flat. You know, there was nothing different. There was no upsets. There was, there was really not, not a lot uh, to talk about on the Friday. Everything happened on the Saturday, you know, when we had the regional list votes come in, when you had Labour cling on to, to seats um, that they thought that they were going to lose, when you had the SNP actually just fall one short of a of a, a majority it was really all all happening on the saturday so yes friday was a bit flat saturday was much more exciting and of course we now have the week ahead with a whole host of new msps at hollywood to look forward to alex what, what about you How, i don't know where you were based for all of this down in london uh, yes, uh, thank you for pointing that out. I'm sure that'll go down well with uh, inter- Nat Twitter. Uh, yes, uh, I thought it was uh, quite a fun election, actually. Um, I mean, uh, Willie Rennie has obviously got loads of great photographs and videos. Um, that hasn't necessarily translated to electoral success. But, you know, you do it for the gram, and that is an interesting approach to, uh, <laughs> to an election. I mean, it's just been endless, hasn't it? I mean, uh, and also I think we were all quite wrong. I think uh, lots of our predictions and the general mood, I mean, the received wisdom that Anas was so good that he was going to get second and Douglas Ross's performance at the debates was so bad that they were floundering. And ultimately, it's, nothing has changed, to uh, <laughs> paraphrase former Prime Minister. I, it's just endless. I'm, I'm looking forward to a lie down. And uh, because nothing has changed, we won't have to talk about independence for the next three years so that or four years so that'll be good <laughs> right right you're new to this game aren't you <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well let's let's take a quick look at the results i mean for for i'm sure seasoned listeners of the steamy they'll probably know these figures off by heart but uh, the the smp ended up 
with 64 seats, um, a, a gain of one overall from 2016. The Conservatives, 31 seats, which is exactly the same as they had in 2016. Labour are down two on 22. The Scottish Greens up two to eight and the Scottish Liberal Democrats down on one. And it would be remiss of me not to mention the complete electoral disaster that was both the Alba Party and All for Unity, who got 1.7% of the vote and 0.9% of the vote, respectively. You stole my line, Alex. I was going to use Theresa May's Nothing Has Changed. Um, I put that in my winners and losers uh, story on that I wrote on Saturday evening. It, it's, it's, it was an election, I think, that we spoke about you know, being quite flat. The campaign changed nobody's mind. And I think that that has been, you know, borne out in the figures. Gina, what, what do you make of, of the SNP to start with? I mean, it, uh, it was a phenomenal day in the constituencies, bar uh, a few key seats that would have delivered that majority. Yeah, the SNP will be uh, quite rightly cock-a-hoop with, with the result. You know, I mean, it's fair to stress how unusual it is to to win a majority in um, the parliamentary system that we have, the voting system that we use for for the Holyrood elections. And what they did in 2011 was something that nobody thought would ever happen. So to come so close to repeating that is really, um, really quite staggering. It's a really remarkable victory for the SNP. And they have also increased their vote share. I mean, turnout was huge, you know, for, for a Scottish uh, parliamentary election, it really it went up by around 8%, I believe. And um, and the SNP seem to have been the main beneficiaries of that. Their vote share, you know, has gone through the roof. And um, they will be, as I said, absolutely cock-a-hoop at, at the result. And, you know, obviously the pro-union parties are not going to like it, but it's very hard to argue against any kind of mandate, even just for the SNP on their own with that result. But when you add the Greens uh, to on top of that in terms of uh, parliamentary numbers to have a pro-independence majority, then without a shadow of a doubt, there is now a mandate within the parliament for a second independence referendum. Um, I think, interesting what um, Alex was saying there about the predictions being wrong, I think the polls more or less pretty much got it right you know I think as ever when you're following a campaign as closely as we do and you're speaking to people within the parties and even the leaders um, as, as the campaign progresses we maybe get a slightly different view of, of how things are going but the polls were, were pretty spot on and you know I think Anna Sauer did actually well not to lose more MSPs uh, than he did I mean he, the Labour have, have dropped by two but you know as he likes to say, and he's right, you know, 10 weeks ago, they were looking to lose um, far more than that. So to, to cling on and to, to keep seats and increase majorities in places like Dumbarton was really remarkable. And to hold on to Edinburgh uh, Southern the way they did, tactical voting has obviously come into play hugely in some of these seats. Um, but, you know, it's not been disastrous for Labour in the way it might have been. And the Tories have remained where they are. And again, that's quite an achievement because Ruth Davidson was hugely popular and was seen to be the face of you know the 2016 election campaign and everybody was voting for Ruth rather than voting for the Tories necessarily. And Douglas Ross has shown that actually that's not the case. And um, whether, you know, we watching things like leaders debates on television think whether he performed poorly or not, I don't think that mattered for those who'd already decided that they were they were going to vote Tory for, for the variety of reasons that they, they probably chose to do so. Um, so yes, it feels like everything has changed and at the same time nothing has changed, you know, and I think what's even more exciting though for the Parliament as a whole is there's there's so many more women going in this time from across 
uh, across all parties and also women of colour for the first time. And you have Pam Duncan Glancy from Glasgow, who's a Labour uh, MSP now, who's a wheelchair user. And we've never had anybody um, with a disability, a physical disability of that kind in the parliament before. So these things are all very new and all very exciting. It'll be really fascinating to see what um, all these new people bring to, to Holyrood over the next five years. I think I slightly disagree with you on the SNP. I mean, I, obviously they've had... Winning is is really good. Uh, and to go back to football, you know, a win is a win is a win. I mean, uh, and twice on Sundays. But they've never had better conditions than this, right? I mean, Boris Johnson is universally disliked in Scotland, so much so that he was not a part of the Conservative campaign. They've got the aftermath of Brexit with the horrendous implications that has had, or ramifications even, I should say, uh, on the fishing industry. Uh, and obviously, it's not something that Scotland voted for. And yet, they haven't managed to get a majority. Nicola Sturgeon has been at the podium every day, showing herself, you know, to, to be a great communicator uh, and, you know, pointing the finger at the UK government routinely uh, and, and repeatedly on everything. <laughs> I mean, quite every, everything, uh, every health decision, uh, every people coming into the country from abroad. Uh, the exposure and the flaws of the Prime Minister should have been enough for them to have done better than they did last time. I, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic result for the SNP, and they will obviously be thrilled. But it re, I am really surprised that, given they will never have conditions like this again, they did not get a majority. And I think that perhaps speaks to the squeeze of the union vote uh, in, in the list seats. I don't. I don't think I agree with you on that, Alex. Because for for two reasons. One, I mean, you have to remember the voting system up here allows for. Uh, well, it, in fact, it demands almost uh, that you have to be on fifty percent plus of the constituency vote before you are close to a a, a majority. The two thousand and eleven result was a complete fluke due to the to the nature of the of the of how the pro-union vote at the time went, AMS, the additional member system, is designed is designed to present, prevent a false majority. Um, it's not designed to prevent a majority for stop, but it's designed to, present, to prevent a false majority. And that's pretty much what it did on, on Saturday, Friday and Saturday. Because if you look at the constituency results, the SNP have had their best ever result there. They've won seats in East Lothian and Eyre that were you know, further away from them than Dumbarton. And they were only really prevented from winning in that overall majority through significant tactical voting in places like, you know, Edinburgh Western, which to be fair, was probably never in play, um, Dumbarton and Eastwood being the the, the main two. Um, the SNP still managed to pick up list seats in this election, which when they won 62, I think it was, constituency seats overall, the fact that they picked up a list seat in the Highlands and Islands in the South is astonishing. That's a huge number of, you know, pro-independent, pro-SNP votes going to the, these parties. Um, there was something on Twitter go, doing the rounds that was just completely false, which is worth pointing out that um, Alba's 8,000 votes in the Northeast stopped the final uh, SNP list, the, the final list seat going to the SNP. In reality, the SNP would have needed 60,000 more votes in the northeast to have won that final list seat due to the nature of you know AMS um and and the Dehont system. I think the SNP 
absolutely maximised their vote and were beaten to a majority by tactical voting on a scale that we've never seen from the pro-union side. Conservative voters across the country and to a lesser extent Labour voters turned out in droves, like the SNP support did, to back the pro-union candidate. That's why I think, I don't actually think that any party here, apart from the Liberal Democrats and maybe Labour, but I think we'll come to them later as, as as to their kind of overall point. But I think the SNP are going to be delighted. They've got as close as I think they ever were going to get to an overall majority. And you've got the Scottish Conservatives with a vote that's held up and is as impressive as the one in 2016. And I think that speaks fundamentally to to the constitutional divide in Scotland of that's all that people are voting on nowadays. It's, it's, it's a, am I pro-independence? Fine, I'll vote for the SNP. Am I pro-union? Fine, I'll vote for whoever's best to beat them in the constituency. And the Greens were 2,000 odd votes away from 10 MSPs um, in both Glasgow and in uh, the South. So there's, there's that aspect of, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, shame for the SNP. I think the SNP would have had will would have had a much easier time of it in the next five years demanding various things. But you can't judge an additional member system uh you know process on first past the post metrics. Because if it was first past the post metrics that we were using, um the SNP won 80% of the of, of those seats. They would have been they would have had a bigger majority than than Boris Johnson down south. I think it's a phenomenal result for the SNP, but it's also a phenomenal result for, for the Scottish Conservatives. I agree with Connor. Alex, we're ganging up against you. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, more, you know, talking down to London yet again. <laughs> yes. Well, look, I mean, it's been, it's been done before and the SNP privately uh, and publicly, you know, were thinking the majority was on. Uh, so I, I do understand it's still a fantastic result for them. I'm not, I'm not limiting that at all. However, and, you know, it was doable. And I think if you say you might get a majority and you don't, it's not necessarily as good as it could have been. Um, but I, I think perhaps I'm not going to convince you during the running time of our podcast. Yeah. I think they, um, they were managing that expectation downwards from, mm-hmm. from quite early on. Yeah, you know, that was the, going into the campaign. I think that was maybe the belief that that, that, that could happen. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, the expectations were removed as, as a, as the campaign progressed, like you say, people thought that, um, I don't know if you want to move on to talk about Labour just now, Connor, but people did think that the ANAS could possibly turn things around. But 10 weeks in as new leader, that was a fairly steep hill to climb. And I, I think that they will be quite pleased with uh, the fact that their vote share didn't collapse to the extent that it might have done otherwise. I think I think if we just quickly finish up on, on the SNP, I think, again, you have to remember that pre-election, um, and arguably in 2016, they were 5,000 votes short across about six or seven constituencies of an overall majority. This time round, they've narrowed that to about 2,000 votes short um, in Aberdeenshire West and Eastwood, um, which I believe are the two closest you know, uh, pro-union held majorities in Scotland. It's a first-past-the-post system that gets you a majority in Scotland and the SNP probably did what um, when Labour designed um, Holyrood expected no one never to do, which is almost whitewash the whole thing. 
let's not forget as well, just before we move on to Labour, I think it's Shetland, isn't it, that was within a percentage point of turning SNP for the first time in in living memory. It's it, it's it was really narrow margins at the end of the day between a majority and not. Um, and I had senior figures in the SNP telling me throughout that they reckoned it was highly unlikely due to the expected kind of tactical votes. Um, but we'll move on to Labour, Gina, because I think it's worthwhile. Do you think that Anasawa has had a good enough campaign and a good enough result to give him the political political capital needed to last until 2026? I do, because I think, um, you know, when he, when he took over, Labour were sitting somewhere like 13 14% in the polls. Richard Leonard was leader. His personal approval ratings were dire, generally because people felt that they didn't know who he was. Um, and that was after three years uh, as Labour leader in Scotland. So um, the fact that Anas Sarwar has come in, his personal approval ratings are are up. You know, people seem to like him personally. It wasn't enough to uh, to make them vote for the party as a whole. But I wonder, again, how much Labour has um, suffered from that tactical voting. If you think about it, the, the Conservatives went full on for the, the second, the list vote, the peach ballot, right from the start of this campaign. That was where their focus was. They weren't really talking about constituencies. I think Labour's uh, campaign came to that conclusion fairly late on in the campaign. So I think by that point, postal votes had been out. People had already voted. They'd probably missed the bus, even the peach bus that Anas had uh, <laughs> designed, especially on those votes. So um, I think if their campaign had uh, maybe had a, a bigger focus on the, the, the second vote earlier on, they might have um, even had a, a, had an even better result and maybe not lost two MSPs. But um, I mean, for a while at the Lothian count, they were thinking they might actually have scraped three people in on the list, um, which would have been quite remarkable given that they won Edinburgh Southern constituency. At the end of the day, obviously that, that didn't happen. But I think I think he's done enough so far in terms of brand, in terms of his own brand, his own personal image, public seem to know who he is or are beginning to know who he is. You know, he's got the, the rest of the parliamentary term to build that up and to be that credible alternative to the SNP, as, as he's talked about from the start. I do think, though, he needs to start shifting his, uh, his chat onto something else because his post-election chat so far has been exactly the same as his campaign, um, you know, uh, conversations. And it's like, right, and ask me, you know, sorry, I think people need to hear more from you now. And it's like, what, what are you going to do? You're not the main party in opposition, but you are there and you need to be heard if you're going to cut through by the next Holyrood election. So it'll be very interesting to see what he does from here on in. But I do also think that, you know, I think the Labour Party is fed up with leadership changes. So I would imagine that he'll be there for the long I should say the Scottish uh, Labour Party is fed up with leadership changes. <laughs> uh, I think it will be too. Yes. It's too early to rule anything out uh, after the reshuffle. I was going to ask Alex: Do you think that the Scottish Labour, you know, are doing better in Scotland than they are in England in the relative terms in which they're existing? Well, I mean, people know who Anas is and they like him, and people either don't know who Sakir is or they dislike him. Uh, or they're kind of neutral on the whole thing. So, I mean, I think it's had a really good campaign. As Gina said, they had they were well behind when they finally got rid of Richard Leonard. And I think he's obviously a positive to the campaign. 
he has, he has been a positive to the Labour campaign. And even if his positive poll ratings haven't necessarily translated to Labour becoming second, they've still done much better than they were than the prospects of what they were facing uh, before he joined. Whereas with Sakir Starmer, can you say that since he joined, Labour are a threat to the Conservatives? Or have they really pushed the agenda on anything? And I mean, I say to someone who you know, defends Sakir, I mean, it's very difficult, only that the leader he's following was a lot worse than uh, Richard Leonard. But the party is, not, is still not united, whereas, as far as I'm aware, Scottish Labour isn't spending the weekend where they make, you know, <laughs> where they do well, trying to eat themselves. They're focusing on the opposition, whereas the, you know, the bigger Labour Party is spending all its time trying to fight each other. Do you think, um, Alex, that there's lessons to be learned from Anas Sawa in Westminster and the way that he approached this campaign? Or do you think, is it, is it two different symptoms of the same disease, if you see what I mean? No, I think that's, I think that's a very good point. I was thinking this, actually. With Anas and uh, Mark Drakeford, the leader, the leader in Wales, they're both quite charismatic, nice. They don't take themselves too seriously. Obviously, uh, Mark Drakeford has spoken about his love of cheese, which everyone can relate to. Whereas Sakir, it's not particularly fun, right? There isn't that sense of fun. He's just quite disappointed all the time and overly handsome. And that can only get you so far. Anas is good on, is good on policy and he's a good, he's a good public speaker. But also, he will join a, a dance and show off some, frankly, outrageous moves uh, outside a stadium. Whereas I, I can't imagine Sakir doing that. I, I think he would take himself too seriously. So yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, the part the Labour campaign nationally is not very positive right now, right? Like you can, Anas is offering radical change uh, in theory uh, and, and more funding, but I'm not sure. And at no point is he like I'm supporting the government. Whereas with Sakir, it's I'm supporting the government. Uh, also, we're not too sure about that thing. And uh, oh, isn't Boris bad? It's not enough. I, I, I don't know what I don't know what the U, the, the UK Labour Party is offering. Uh, whereas you can see that with an ass every day. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the difference is, you know, the, one of the big differences I should say is that the the Labour Party's manifesto up here for this election campaign and indeed the SNPs and the Tories to some extent were all, you know, promising massive amounts of public spending around COVID recovery and so on and so forth, and that. There wasn't very much kickback on that, you know, up here. People just went, yeah, okay, and then but voted along constitutional lines. You know, they weren't looking at the the economics of any of that. Obviously, the IFS and various other think tanks, you know, took the manifestos apart and said that some of the spending really just wasn't credible, but it didn't seem to impact on any of their campaigns. Whereas I would think if you try to do that as a Labour Party, well, Jeremy Corbyn tried to do that, didn't he, in 2017, even uh, 2019 to a lesser extent, and it just gets blown out of the water, you know, and it's like Labour aren't credible on, on the, the the finances and on the, the, the economics of things. Um, and so people, but the Tories seem seem to be, even although at the same time Boris is promising spending everywhere. And let's face it, on those local election campaigns, a lot of those Tory votes were were gained because he was promising a lot of spending or people are expecting spending in, the, in their areas. So um, I find that shift in the dynamics of how people are thinking and looking at spending and public spending 
very, very interesting. And uh, just to go back to um, Alex's point on Anas Sarwar's dancing, I- I'd really like to drill down into the Livingston voting figures to see if that had any influence <laughs> <laughs> on the voters at all in Livingston. <laughs> I'll do the data crunching for you later, Gina. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask Gina, I mean, do you think that the Constitution has stopped Anasara from gaining that kind of additional few thousand votes on the list that's required to kind of knock the Tories down onto maybe 25, 24 and put put Labour into the second place. Because for, for me, I think that what Scottish Labour offer is clearly different, but they were offering as their only message, I would say, the same message as everyone else, which was we put COVID recovery first, and then you had the SNP going, and we want independent second independence referendum. The Tories were going, and we're absolutely against Indy Ref 2. Liberal Democrats were going, and we're against Indy Ref 2. And the Greens were going, we're pro-Indy, which puts Labour looking like they're talking about only one massive issue rather than both massive issues, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it was a real gamble for them to do that. But I think, you know, they were looking at the polls of voters' priorities which absolutely put COVID recovery at the top and the recovery of the NHS in particular. So they they, they gambled on that as, as their main focus. And also because they don't want to talk about the Constitution, you know, it does nothing for Labour to talk about the Constitution. I mean, they're not a party that's... Um, you know, historically, traditionally about constitutional politics in the way that the SNP and the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, you know, are. Um, so they fall between those two stools and it's incredibly difficult. And if that that's where they've suffered since 2014, as well as, of course, being tainted um, by being seen to have worked with the Conservatives at all, you know, in the Better Together campaign. Um, and yet, you know, I've I've never really understood it because to me, you know, the Labour Party's answer to these questions should be very obvious and very straightforward. It should be, we are a party that believes in A, the pooling and sharing of resource and B, being part of something bigger, being part of a union that improves the lives of the people that we want to represent. And that's the UK and it's, pos- it's the EU, you know. So, you know, they've they failed to do that in uh, down south with uh, Brexit and so on. And they failed, they failed to do it up here after the, the 2014 independence referendum. They failed to get those messages across because instead of talking about it, they thought it was over and done with and, they've, they've, you know, they've run away from it. But the, the voters haven't run away from it. You know, it's still a massive issue, independence and Brexit. And, and Labour needs to have very, very clear lines on all of that. And, and to me, I don't understand why it's not obvious that they do that. And I understand why Anas kept saying, Let's not go back to those old arguments of the past, but the, those old arguments aren't settled. So you need to have an answer, you know. The, and and the, the result of this election has, has shown that very, very clearly. So it will be really interesting to see where he goes from here on, on the independence question. I mean, I, I, in the short term, you definitely will still be saying, "Well, now is not the time." Everybody seems to be saying that at the, at the minute. It has to be COVID recovery first. But you know, come you know, two years down the line, they're going to have to be saying something. And I think it's quite interesting that today we have Gordon Brown uh, writing in The Scotsman about, you know, his think tank and how it's going to change what it does to try and encourage that idea of a shared um, heritage and shared concerns and and shared traditions across the UK rather than running away from talking about any of that so it'll be interesting to see where that goes and and of course whether it shifts anybody's minds on anything i think the modern labor party are 
scared and have hid from the big issues for a long time now. I mean, you only have to look at, and you only have to look at what the the damage that's done to the party. Consider, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn was running for the leader and all of his uh, rivals abstained on, uh, I think it was on a benefits bill, um, mm. rather because they didn't want to, look, they didn't want to look, you know, too left wing uh, and then get hammered for it. Um, and they were trying to look fiscally responsible. And again, that stems from the fact that Labour refused to take. Uh, they were they just let the narrative, and Ed Miliband did this as well. They let the narrative of Labour failed on the banks to be accepted, and so Conservatives still still yeah. say it now. And the note that was left, you know, there's no more money left, has you know kind of gave validation to that. And now every people outside the bubble know about that. When really there was a global financial crisis, and as Gordon Brown said, we saved the world. So it. And, and they just let that happen routinely. And on the constitutional arguments, Labour was scared to confront the SNP on their own turf because they want, you know, they've lost so many voters, the SNP, they want them to come back. And in, in refusing to take a strong position and just be aggressively against an independence referendum, which technically is a Labour position, but they won't quite say it in the same way, they have allowed the Conservatives to take votes from, the, take votes from them tactically. It is the great failure of the modern Labour Party that they have allowed the narratives and the arguments around them uh, to be made while they stay quiet, hoping that they can hold on to uh, or win votes over from people who will have no interest in voting Labour. They have let that happen on immigration for a time, they have let that happen on Europe, and they have let that happen on independence in Scotland. It's not enough to say People don't want to talk about that because they do want to talk about that and they do care about it. And unless you make the argument to people, you are not going to convince them. You have to bring them over. You can't say, oh, well, we'll spend money because everyone's going to spend money. You have to be this progressive party that is brave enough to make the arguments because otherwise, what is the point in you? Absolutely. What I'm going to ask you, Alex, and if you answer this question well enough, you might be in line for a knighthood if, uh, this, if the Labour Party ever get back in power. But how do you make a positive case for the union that isn't just the simple conservative line of we don't want independence. You make the argument that we are, and of course, this is not me making the argument because I am politically neutral, but if I was in the Labour Party, you've got to make the argument that we are, I mean, it's, it's, it's silly and we've heard it all before, but you have to say we're better together and point to the history of why we're better together and what we can do going forward to make <laughs> the, all four corners uh, of the United Kingdom great. And, and it baffles me because the SNP argument on currency is, you know, we've kind of sorted it, but we'll we'll do something eventually, which is not enough. It's we'll join the European Union, but obviously you can't with the new currency, so that that would limit them going in anyway. And you have to be brave enough to make these these arguments uh, and sell yourselves as a great alternative. A huge asset for the SNP has been, oh Boris Johnson, oh look at Westminster, we can't do this, we can't do that. What is to stop the Labour Party in Westminster saying, right, this is what we should be doing in Scotland and we want to work with the old administration to deliver it? Uh, and, they, and I suppose this is a similar thing with the Conservatives. So like the Internal Market Bill, which was framed as a huge power grab, when it's additional funding, then Scotland's not losing any money. It's, it's actually getting more, even though it's not from Europe. It's still from another union they are part of. And then I, I just allow that narrative to go. Um, so, I mean, obviously, there's, there's not really, really uh, an answer other than you just have to tackle the argument. You've got to make the positive case rather than say, oh, Boris, oh, you've, you've, got, you've got to say, well, that financially won't work. Um, but also, I, w I wouldn't accept a knighthood anyway. 
<laughs> in the great tradition of uh, David Barry and Robert Smith. Of course, uh, Labour's other problem in Scotland with the, the constitutional question is that the party itself internally is quite divided over it. You know, you do have, I mean, people uh, like um, Anna Sarwar and Jackie Bailey and so on who are absolutely 100% dead against a second independence referendum and dead against independence. And then you have people like I mean, Monica Lennon who ran for, you know, against Anas for the, the, the leadership um, who is a bit more open to saying, well, you know, if, as we are now in this situation, the SNP win this election and they, they have a mandate for a second independence referendum, Labour shouldn't really stand in the way of that because that's a democratic outcome. You know, yes, campaign against it because we don't think it would be um, beneficial for, to Scots, particularly the poorest Scots, they'll end up being worse off. If that's your argument, then you can go out and, and, uh, and fight for that, but maybe not, you know, ha- you know, say that there definitely won't be a second independence referendum. So within the party itself, it has those two opposing views. It doesn't really matter at this minute because I think, you know, it's not going to be it's not going to be the immediate focus for for, for this um, parliamentary term, but it will be for for well for this next session of parliament, I should say, rather than parliamentary term. And but it will be for the next, and they'll they'll have to have their arguments, their ducks lined up for that. Let's move on to the Scottish Conservatives, because I think we've talked a lot about Scottish Labour, but the Scottish Conservatives have had a fantastic result. Alex, I think you wrote something in, in, in The Scotsman that was, a I think, yesterday for today on Douglas Ross's success. To cut a long story short, it's essentially that, you know, he had a, arguably had a bad campaign, but has turned out a great result. I would argue that his result is arguably more impressive than Ruth Davidson's result uh, in 2016. Um, what's your thoughts? It absolutely is better than Ruth Davidson's uh, result. This has done, I mean, he, you know, he resigned over Dominic Cummings to separate himself from the UK government and has faced criticism for Boris Johnson and Brexit throughout the campaign and had comments, uh, you know, historic comments he made um, about the travelling community. Uh, so, we, you know, he, he's had everything thrown at him, but the relentless messaging of Stop NDRF2 has cut through. I mean, I, I, you wouldn't think that for Labour and Lib Dem voters, Conservatives would not necessarily be the uh, the flag to to rally behind, um, but they did in the list vote, uh, and that has delivered a result. And you know the campaign. I mean, think even days before the campaign, Ruth Davidson saying, "Oh, you know, I wasn't part of the planning. You know, trying to distance herself from it." Uh, he was being criticised for having Ruth Davidson on all the leaflets uh, rather than him, but repeating the same message and maybe not being inspiring in debates and maybe not being you know the most charismatic uh, isn't the problem because, you know, for the casual viewer, you see someone on the screen or you hear a campaign, they're saying, I will stop NDRF2 and they're saying it repeatedly uh, and passionately, whereas Labour, oh, I don't want to talk about it. Let's look over there, squirrel. It's it's not enough. Uh, And it's a a fantastic campaign, really. I mean, considering everything that, I mean, the, the backlash against Boris at the moment with the Tory sleaze stuff, uh, and just the amount of messaging from the SNP linking him to Boris Johnson at all times. Uh, and also the the free school meal stuff. Labour saying they're going to stop, uh, not Labour, um, uh, the Scottish Tories. It was so bad, the Scottish Tories decided they were no longer going to vote on uh, English-only matters. It's a fantastic result, and they've held the line and, you know, probably stopped an SNP majority, which, uh, obviously, we were all expecting. <laughs> 
I think what's interesting about the, the Tory campaign, as we were saying earlier, was their, their relentless focus on the, the list vote. They were almost saying to people, uh, vote for whoever you like in the constituency, just give us your list vote. And, and that worked for them. You know, even if it's like vote Labour on the constituency, but, you know, vote for us on the on the, on the, on the regional list. Um, so that definitely worked. But also, I think, you know, we can't forget that in 2016, their best result a lot of people voted conservative for the first time ever in their lives then so to do it a second time is much easier so you know it's they they weren't having to get over that hurdle of like oh my goodness I'm actually a conservative voter now which for many Scots would have been you know anathema a long time ago so um I think you know that has also played quite a big part. But yes, I think and tactical voting, obviously, a lot of Labour, Lib Dems. I mean, if you look at the Lib Dem <coughs> vote, I mean, it's just collapsed. And I think that's because, you know, it, it's shifted to the Tories completely, uh, more or less. Uh, they, obviously, they did well in the constituencies where they where they held, apart from Shetland, which, you know, they saw a reduced majority. But um, the, the rest of it, they saw their majorities go up, Edinburgh Western in particular, Alex Cole Hamilton's majority is ridiculously large now. But again, the Tory vote and the Labour vote collapsed. So you can see where that tactical vote went. So I think um, it's, it's really fascinating because if, if you talk about the Alba party coming on the scene and trying to instill that idea of tactical voting on the list amongst the the uh, the, 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 the pro-independent supporters and not really getting anywhere with it. But I wonder if it actually had a kind of an element of helping the conservative message at the same time to say actually no you can vote tactically and this is how you do it and you vote for us even if you're not a fan of Douglas Ross or you're not a fan of Boris Johnson it's one way to stop an independence referendum. So I think that the the Scottish Conservatives biggest problem now is that they are now going to have to present arguments suggesting that Ref 2 there is no mandate for Ref 2 so far, I've seen Murdo Fraser claim that the constituency vote share was um, in favour of pro-union parties, that <laughs> I think more constituencies than not voted in favour of the pro- pro-union parties overall, and that obviously there's no overall majority and that the Scottish Greens don't matter. Um, there's a point at which these, frank, frankly, you know, arguments that don't hold any real water become damaging to the Tories? Or do you think that they can say this all they like and um, their core vote is going to lap them up? Alex? Well, I don't think they have to... I don't don't think that's a pressing concern at the moment because of the recovery. I don't think that the SNP want a referendum now. Uh, The fact that they aren't uh, working with the Greens in the same way, uh, I think will allow them not to uh, not to bring forward any independent legislation yet, um, because the polling has suggested they might lose. So, for the foreseeable, I think the SNP will be talking around the subject, and oh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to. Um, but I think I think we'll be waiting, uh, which will give uh, Douglas Ross a chance to kind of establish themselves as on, on more domestic policy. Which I mean, he's already, I think, yesterday and today, been talking about the fact that, you know, we're not just about IndyRef2. I mean, the campaign was, but now, now you've got us. Here are all the other things that we maybe didn't really talk about. Uh, so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's an immediate concern. And I also think that any backlash over it is more likely to be focused on Westminster. 
I mean, he is not part of the core, uh, you know, not the union unit, but the you know fancy replacement to that, which we've heard obviously nothing from uh, since it was since it was set up. Um, maybe uh, you know Rishi Sunak is, is is bringing up some fantastic idea. Yeah. Uh, so I I think basically it's not it's not a pressing concern now for them because the backlash was always against Boris Johnson. Should Boris Johnson call Nicholas Sturgeon's bluff? and suggest that an independence referendum should happen within the year? No, because we are focusing on the COVID recovery. Uh, but I do, think, I do think perhaps it would be in the UK government's interests to, uh, to do it sooner rather than later. Because the messaging has softened, hasn't it, from, from number 10 over the, over the weekend since the SNP have, have, have won this election. The messaging of, you know never in the next 40 years has disappeared it's now just just not now but probably later you know we're going to probably let you have it at a later point but not now rather than not until 2050 well the obvious answer is that they have to do it because it's you know now there's a democratic mandate for it but it's much easier to say we're not denying democracy we are focusing on protecting citizens lives uh, and building back better for all four corners of the union etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, so, I mean, it's all going to be about framing. I mean, I, the SNP and the Conservatives are very good at for making people see what they're doing rather than, you know, focusing on what they're actually doing. It's what they're seen to be doing. And, and I think they'll just stall. I, I see. <laughs> and also, you know, uh, the briefing out was that the Prime Minister is worried about what his legacy will look like if he loses Scotland rather than, oh, here are all my, my passionate reasons for loving Scotland and the Union. It was, oh, it might be a bit embarrassing. So I don't think they've got a good argument. Yeah, so maybe maybe they're still workshopping it because the whole independence idea has sprung up on them. How are they to know? But yeah, I mean they'll just they'll just deny it until they absolutely have to. The same thing could be said um, of the SNP, though. Of course, I mean they they've got no desire to have a referendum just now. Um, a because of COVID, and they won't be able to have the campaign that they would they would want uh, because of restrictions. But also, they have no answers to any of the questions that were problematic for them in twenty fourteen which saw them fail to win that referendum. They, they have no new economic case. Nicholas Sturgeon says one still needs to be developed. Um, they have no answers on the, really on the currency yet, you know, or on EU or on borders. I mean, these things came up towards the end of the campaign. Um, and it was quite clear that despite them having, like the Conservatives, Alex, you know, seven years in which to uh, line up their arguments properly and have all this stuff in the bag, um, they haven't done it. And interestingly, you know, Connor and I spoke to uh, Tasmina Amishek, you know, from uh, the Alba Party, and it was the same thing. I mean, they, <coughs> excuse me, they who were really pushing, you know, for a for a quick independence referendum, they had no answers either. They hadn't done the work, and I find I find that really quite astounding that that behind the scenes, that kind of work isn't going on, and and they don't have the answers yet. So there's absolutely no way that they'll be wanting an independence campaign anytime soon. Let's talk about. Alba Party. I think it's, it's worth mentioning before we do. You know, Scottish Greens had a, a a superb result in the end. Probably two MSPs short of where they'd have really wanted to be with te- with with ten. Um, but that was, I mean, that com- came down in the end to literally a handful of votes. I think either side in in a couple of regional lists. Um, so they've had a good campaign. It's the it's the biggest pro independence majority uh, when you also. Uh, think about 20, 
11. Um, but we'll move on to Albert because that's the other big story um, of this election, or at least it was pre, pre-election day. Um, Alex Salmond has been embarrassed, rejected by the ballot box, roundly defeated. I mean, his performance even in the northeast was, frankly, terrible for a man who has the, the history that he does in that part of Scotland. Um, Gina, what do you put Alba's feelings down to? I would argue that the maths was never wrong, but you can't win an election on maths. <laughs> yes, um, that's true. I think, um, I must admit, I did think that Alex Salmond would scrape together enough votes to get in on the list in the North East. I did think that his personal uh, popularity up there uh, historically would uh, would have seen him elected. So yeah, he looked a, a very kind of uh, broken, defeated man uh, when when the count uh, came in. And I think you know, I, I suppose in a way we really shouldn't be surprised at that because his personal polling was was dire. He, I mean, it was worse than Boris Johnson's, you know, among Scots. And you know, the the toll of the the last three years on his reputation with uh, the investigation into his behaviour when he was first minister. Um, that that has played a huge part, I would say, in in why he has failed to to get elected. But I don't think it's interesting. I mean, I think we have to accept um, the fact that Alba are a new party. You know, for all the um, the the fanfare with which they were launched because of who was leading them, you know, might not necessarily, you know, maybe not all publicity is good publicity. Um, but this, they obviously are not going to be going anywhere. They've got. You know, Kenny McCaskill and Neil Hanvey, MPs in Westminster. They've got people who are councillors uh, across Scotland and we've got local elections coming up next year. So I, I would imagine there'll be more people standing in those for the Alba party. I, I would imagine, I would think though that Alex Salmond might just go quietly. <laughs> now, I would think if they want to have any electoral success, because it's been proven that he is not, you know, going to be beneficial to them in the long run if they if they really want to stay around as as a political party. I mean, he he came out guns firing um, on on some podcasts and YouTube live streams over the weekend. You know, calling some people in the SNP some of the most graceless people in in the country. I think there was a suggestion he was also going to Donald Trump it on Twitter from now on. So he might be disappearing from frontline politics, but it might not be quietly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think he also branded um, the likes of us and others in the media as insane. Yes. And yeah, and, <laughs> he said, you know, really there's just the people who blog about independence are, are, are the same media in Scotland now. So I think if that's your, um, your, your limit of uh, expectation of where you think you're going to be uh, written about, then you know you're kind of on a hiding to nothing. You do need to have that reach across Scotland, and that unfortunately for Alex Salmond involves <laughs> mainstream media. I hate that phrase uh, t- to some extent. Um, and yes, like you say, I don't think he's going to go quietly. I, I think if he really wants Alba to be a force, though, you'll have to think very long and hard about how much involvement he he's going to have there in future. I also would like to disagree with something you said earlier about Alex Salmond being embarrassed by the result. I'm not sure that would be the case because he doesn't feel shame. <laughs> it's a good point. Well made. Yeah, it's, a, it's a strong point. I think I think if we look at um, you know Alba going forward, there'll be there'll be obviously be calls for both Neil Hanvey and Kenny McCaskill to stand down as MPs and and hold a by election. Um, that's highly unlikely to happen because they would probably lose. 
Um, but do do you think that there's there's any talent in that party, Gina, that's worth looking out for? The one that springs to mind is someone who is extremely vocal on Twitter and I think was doing some of the broadcast rounds as well on Saturday is 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 Chris McElhinney out in the West. Um, he seems the obvious choice, or Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, for the leadership of the Alba party. Do you think that they could actually bring that party to the next level within the next year ahead of the council elections and maybe ahead of 2026 as well? I think if they if they plan it properly, yes. I, um, I think actually having someone like Tasmina as as leader would be um, more beneficial to them than than Chris because she's got a, a profile already. Um, I mean, she will obviously also always be associated with Alex Salmond, so you know they'd have to weigh that up. Um, like, see, but she she has no concerns about that, as she made very clear um, when she was on the podcast. But. I think Chris is is um, too much of an unknown to to the majority of, of Scots. You know, he's a, a big fish in a small pond through in in, in Greenock and Inverclyde. But um, Tasmina has more of a reach, and also she's female, which always does does help. And given particularly a lot of their uh, policy is around uh, women's rights and so on, you know, it would be odd, I think, to have somebody like Chris lead that f- charge. Um, and I think as well. I think a lot of people thought that was a very incongruous thing to have Alex Salmond, you know, leading. Um, I mean, he didn't speak about it much, to be honest. He, I think he kind of kept pushing that, that issue on to Tasmina and some of the other women that are involved with his campaign, um, some of whom are quite formidable, you know, f- feminists, uh, local councillors um, who, who are not going to go away quietly, I don't think, at all. You know, they will, they will be standing for election next year and have um, and probably do have local popularity so I wouldn't necessarily think that they, they wouldn't get re-elected just because they're with Alba but I think if you have if they plan it properly um, rather than this just this sudden decision to do it just ahead of the the election I think they could well be around for for, for a good time to come um, and they will just be continually a thorn in the side of the SNP around when we're going to have an, an independence referendum and while for the minute they can kind of bat that off It'll be interesting to see how long that, that they can do that for. There's an argument, isn't there, Alex, that maybe by 2026, if we haven't had an independence referendum in Scotland, that Alba's argument that the SNP is going too slowly holds weight with more of the um, Scottish population than maybe it did on Thursday. I suppose, but my suspicion is either they will obtain one before then or the general next general election will be fought, uh, at least in Scotland, on that very on that very issue, you know, the prime minister might say, "Well, you know, win a, win a majority, you know, win all the Scotland seats, uh, and maybe and maybe I'll consider it um, if you're lucky, uh, and then if they do, we can just quit." It's quite it'd be quite a dangerous position for Boris Johnson to take because Scotland's already shown it can quite happily return massive numbers of uh, SNP MPs to to Westminster, and you know. It's not for nothing that we're not known as being particularly thrown. So if that challenge is laid down to the Scottish electorate, they might just well say, right, OK, you know, because we like to consider ourselves as a, a democratic nation. And I think um, if there's not been an independence referendum by the end of this term or, or, or by the general election, then people might just well call Boris's bluff. Do we think it will be legislated for one to happen before that election? So do we th- do we think not only is there you know the it goes through, but then there is one, or do you think that we have the Scottish election that well the next general election first? 
I think the SNP would like to have the next general election first because if Boris is returned as Prime Minister, it adds weight to their uh, campaign to, you know, get get out of the UK given his deep unpopularity up here. But of course, by that point, who knows, he might have spent an absolute fortune in Scotland and stamped a Union Jack on everything and people might be quite happy with that. You know, And if people are in jobs and if people are, you know, are working and they're able to, you know, you know, feed their, themselves and their kids and they're able to, you know, buy a house, then they might think, right, okay, you know, Boris is working for Scotland after all. So there's 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 a lot still to be seen what in terms of what happens from here on. Well in. they will be repealing the fixed term Parliament Act in the uh, in the Queen's speech. So we could be having that election sooner rather than later. Sorry, I know I know we're only, you know, a couple of days out. I'm just just warning you now. <laughs> God. I think I think we're we we probably more likely to have a court case, aren't we? Talking about whether or not a referendum is in, within the legislative competence of, of Holyrood before we are another election. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see if that court case is brought by the government um, down in Westminster. I I think that might there might be a challenge to that from other areas in Scotland uh, rather than rather than Westminster. Interesting, Michael Gove's already saying that they wouldn't you know, go to court, um, which makes me suspect that they know that there are others who would quite happily take the Scottish government to court over it. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, Gina, I wanted wanted to ask, we've got a, few, a lot of resignations from Holyrood um, within the SNP. Um, you know, we no longer have Jean Freeman as, 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 as health secretary and well, at least in, once uh, a new one is appointed um, by Nicola Sturgeon, we've got... Uh, Angus Robertson in Holyrood. Um, do you think, uh, well, I'll ask that question again. Um, where do you think uh, the SNP reshuffle will put key ministers, you know, like John Swinney, who's been, who frankly, there's probably a nationwide clamour to get him out of education um, and new people like, like, like Angus, who, you know, might replace Mike Russell at Constitution, somewhere like that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's the obvious job for for Angus Robertson is to go to, to to go straight into there, and also given his experience in Westminster, and so on, um, that'll be seen as a bonus. Um, I think John Swinney. John Swinney is really interesting because he's a sort of man who will not want to leave that education role unfinished. You know, he's is he is a has a, a lot of integrity about him, John Swinney, whether you agree with him politically or, or on his decisions or, or any of that. I think he's the sort of guy who wants to see a job through to the end. So he might not want to shift. And of course, he's got the OECD report to come out and he's got what will be a terrible exams debacle again this summer. So Nicola Sturgeon will have to weigh up whether, you know, he's allowed to, ca- he, if he wants to, she should let him carry on with that and take all that flack because he's already damaged and, and, and tainted in some way, or if it's time to just you know cut the strings on that and, and give that job to somebody else who can start afresh um, and move John Swinney back to um, finance and the economy because the economy will be a hugely important uh, role uh, with with COVID recovery, and he has been a safe pair of hands in in, in those roles in the past. And that then would leave education open and health is also open. And also it would mean that Kate Forbes would have to come out of finance and talk about her maybe moving to one of these other big portfolio areas. Um, health being the most likely, I think, because um, it's interesting that people talk about having to humanise Kate Forbes when she's really quite a very friendly person when you meet her. But I think her persona, maybe particularly when you're dealing with numbers and statistics all the time, maybe comes across as, as quite cold. 
So she might well end up in the health brief. Education, you know, it is a bit of a poison chalice. There are people within the the, the cabinet already who could take on that role, though. There's people like Shirley Ann Somerville, you know, she could be moved from Social Security. She's worked in a junior education ministerial post before. Um, and I think, you know, people kind of thought, kind of liked her. I don't know how, how if they thought she was any good, um, you know, in that role, I don't know. Um, but I think she, I think she was reasonably well liked. Um, so she might get moved into a role like that. I would imagine uh, Fiona Hislop will remain in the cabinet because she's a very experienced, in fact, one of the, you know, the, the most experienced uh, female cabinet secretaries. Now her role might change quite dramatically, though, and take in communities as well. I think because Aileen Campbell has has left, um, and then there's Fergus Ewing who's there, you know. He might. I, I wonder if he might get shuffled right out of the cabinet, actually, and that she might bring in somebody else. Uh, and and never mind having a gender balance, just have more women, you know, altogether. And it could well be she might even bring back Shona Robinson, who was health uh, secretary before, and give her a different brief. And Hume's Yusuf obviously is still there, and um, he might end up. I think, and of course, I will be proved wrong within the next fortnight, and um, being moved from justice. Um, you know, so he no longer has to deal with the kind of fallout of the hate crime bill and trying to have a, a clean slate on that and maybe become the face of the COP26 and the environment brief because, you know, Sturgeon has already said that um, Humza Yusuf and Kate Forbes are likely successors. So I think, you know, she will want to see them in posts where they're competing to take over from her and also to see what they can do, you know, and that's, and the environmental brief will be very important this year as well. So um, those are my guesses because that's all they are. Guesses, I guess. <laughs> I, was say, I think, I think there's uh there's, you know, discussion, I mean, rumor really, about maybe Jenny Gilruth being pulled into education. Mm. Um, ben McPherson, obviously as a junior minister um, is probably in line from a, for a promotion. I think some people think um, he might, he might be one for COP26, for example, given his current brief. And yeah, it's. Uh, it, I think the only one you could probably put money on is uh, Angus Robertson to Constitution because replacing yeah. such a verbose man in, in Michael Russell with another very talented orator, um, given his time in, in Westminster, uh, it's probably yeah. likely. And he, certainly his broadcast rounds over, over the weekend um, probably set the scene for a stare down with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove over the over the coming years. Yeah, I, I, the Jenny Go Ruth question is interesting because she would seem an obvious one for education, but I'm led to believe by sources very close to uh, Jenny Go Ruth, <laughs> I think she's quite happy where she is. So not to say she would turn down a role like that, <laughs> I suppose, but I think um, I think she quite likes being international affairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, both of you, Alex and Gina, for joining us on this. Uh, episode of the steamy uh, feel free to get in touch with us on twitter um, i'm at connor underscore matchit um, gina is at worn out mum hack and alex remind me i think you're at alex of brown alex of brown there we go so so do follow us on twitter get in touch if you want to have any questions raised um, at this podcast and thank you very very much for listening the steamy a laudable production for the scotsman